0: Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is the selection of the new pope and the relationship between Protestant churches and Catholic churches worldwide. It's an important topic because there are so many of both groups in the world, and everybody is keeping an eye on what's happened recently in Rome in relationship to the replacement of a pope who retired, the first time that's happened in, in 600 years. So we've got a little bit of an unusual situation. Uh, and and so this is a new selection. And it also is significant because in this case the, the pope comes not from Europe but from the New World, and in fact, from Latin America. So we have assembled a panel of experts to discuss this with us. I have Scott Harrell, who teaches in Systematic Theology here at Dallas Seminary. Uh, to my left and to my right is Lanier Burns, who also teaches in Systematic Theology. Uh, Lanier is a senior Professor, Uh, It's his designation, I share a New Testament with him, and uh, Scott is Professor of Systematic Theology. And then our guest by Skype is Leopoldo Sanchez who teaches Systematic Theology at Concordia Seminary. So I'm not allowed to put a single foot wrong because I have all these systematicians next to me (laughs) who will put it together if I blow it apart. Uh, We're pleased to have you all with us, and Leopoldo, I'd like to begin with you. Talk about the, your reaction when you heard not just that a pope was selected, but that a pope was selected from Latin America. And tell them about your own background as you, as you uh, respond to that question.
2: Well, an Argentinian pope. I was born in Chile, so just uh, next door. Um, and I was raised in Panama. So I reacted to the news at a very visceral level, if I may say so. Hmm. Um, uh, It wasn't a kind of a a systematic doctrinal reaction at first. Uh, And there was a a bit of joy uh, in the sense that um, it was good to see uh, the church, uh, who calls itself Catholic, capital C, also, express in her own leadership and face to the world a Catholic, small c, global face, you know. And so, a Latin American Pope. So, my first reaction, I think, was one of joy with a little bit of a smile, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, a reaction of sadness. Um, uh, there was even a little bit of a, of a little bit of a tear coming out. Because uh, being from Latin America uh, and understanding the history of the presence of Roman Catholicism in the continent, uh, I have family who are Catholic,
3: hmm. uh,
2: whom I love dearly, and so the election of the new pope also reminded me of the divisions that we have in 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 the one. Uh, Holy Christian and Apostolic Church, uh, very visible uh, divisions, and so it was both uh, a moment of uh, joy but also a moment of sadness.
3: Hmm. So
2: that was my initial reaction to the election of the of the new pope.
0: Okay, uh, Scott, I'm going to start with you since you've ministered some time in Latin America, and again, you might tell people a little bit of that background as you answer the question. What was your response to the election of Francis the first?
4: Well, my background, Daryl, is starting out in the city of Porto Alegre, which is the closest large city to Buenos Aires and to Argentina in Brazil. And so the population was largely Italian, German, uh, Russian, more so than what we might think is Spanish and Portuguese, or Indian for that matter. Uh, And And uh, a number of times I was at the large Roman Catholic seminary in Porto Alegre, and they would come to join me even in our church. There was an openness, a rather extraordinary openness uh, back in the early 80s in that regard. Uh, Then moving to Sao Paulo and teaching across the street from the huge pontifical university, Hmm. we uh, we had quite a lot of rubbing shoulders with, not always amicably, but, but usually so. Uh, Roman Catholics uh, in the larger city of Sao Paulo, too. So there's, there's a history there. When, when I heard that uh, now Pope Francis I was put in place, I was impressed by the wisdom of the Catholic Church in so doing. And not only do you have, what, 41% more or less of uh, the Roman Catholic population worldwide in Latin America, but here's a man who has been uh, sympathetic toward a number of different groups evangelicals as much as any mm-hmm. and when those like our own Luis Palau is a representative of evangelical rejoice when uh, when this man that they've prayed with has been appointed Pope uh, that's that's uh, that's a good sign that there will be uh, hopefully fruitful relations in the future
0: yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna read some of the uh some of the material for that Luis uh, uh, gave Christianity today when they asked him about this because the, he is very very close uh, to the Pope and has worked with him on many hmm. many matters. Lanier uh, you and I are just average everyday Anglos who uh, have hung out here in the United States for the most part <laughs> no extensive overseas ministry some overseas experience of course but so what was your take on uh, on the selection of Francis the first?
5: Well, I don't bring the expertise on the ground that Leo and Scott do, but my Doctor of Philosophy research was on the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation in early modern and modern times. Uh, And so my approach to all of this is mainly theological and historical. My reaction to Francis' first election, Jorge, uh, <laughs> my response to his election, like Leo's, is very mixed. Uh, number one, I think he's the model of a servant leader. And I was deeply impressed by some of his gestures as, as pope, which can be suffocatingly hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he is a humble man. Um, I'm very encouraged by that. I also feel the need to have cooperation internationally because the Catholic Church um, is conservative on family values and certain ethical issues. And we simply have to stand together at that level. However, when we speak of dialogue and we speak of relationships, I'm skeptical until I hear the details. Because if we're talking evangelism, and we're talking church growth. Uh, I fear that most people don't understand the inner doctrinal workings, the hard system that is Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So I'm mixed with Leo. Yeah, it it is a very very uh, complex kind of
0: discussion for a variety of reasons. Let me just, uh, since we're talking about Francis in particular, uh, to start off with. Let me just read to you some of the things that Luis Palau had to say about about his election. This is in response to a question. Well, actually, this is an interview that dates back to March 14th of of 2013, and uh, this is in response to a question. What was your reaction when you heard that uh, Bergoglio, I probably didn't pronounce that very well, has been selected as had been selected as pope? He says, it was exciting because of Argentina, because of his personality, and because of his openness towards evangelical Christians. I got kind of emotional simply having known him. He came in second to Pope Benedict XVI in the last election – that's something we're not supposed to know, by the way, but apparently it's public knowledge – and pulled out of the vote voluntarily because he thought we shouldn't be doing this vote after vote. I said to him when I saw him afterwards, what a pity. I thought I would be able to say I know the Pope is my friend. I said he'd probably get elected the next time, but he said no, I'm too old. It was a total surprise because I also thought he was past the age. Since last time he didn't win, I figured he wouldn't win this time, but here we go. He got elected. He's not too old." And so it, he talks about his personal friendship with uh, with Francis and says, uh, You know he knew God the Father personally, the way he prayed, the way he talked to the Lord was a man who knows Jesus Christ and was very spiritually intimate with the Lord. It's not an effort for him to pray. He didn't do reading prayers. He just prayed to the Lord spontaneously. It's a sign that good things will happen worldwide in the years of his papal work. So here's Luis Palau, probably the most visible or one of the, certainly one of the most well-known evangelicals in Latin America who knows Francis and knows of him and has prayed with him and has worked with him. They're fellow Argentinians, which means that they've rubbed shoulders in much the way that you, Scott, have rubbed shoulders with, uh, with um, Catholics from Brazil and so from that standpoint it seems to me uh, it's we have insight with someone who who may well know him. We have a little bit of the details to use your phrase Lanier. Uh, Leo, um, what what as you hear Luis talk about this figure um, uh, what what insight do you gain about Francis?
2: Well yes I, I have uh, sort of a, an approach. Uh, to the Pope in terms of uh, the person of Jorge, Mm
3: -hmm. the
2: person of Bergoglio, on the one hand, but also an approach to the person of the Pope as one who sits in the office of Pope. Mm -hmm. And all that that represents, Lanier was talking about the historical and the theological complexities of, of the office. And so, as a Lutheran, listening to Luis, uh, as a Latin American Lutheran, on the one hand, the Latin American in me says, uh, Jorge, Bergoglio, and all this means in terms of the openness uh, and the wisdom, uh, as, as God put it, of the Catholic Church in reaching out uh, to a more global community. And as a Lutheran, then I also have questions. Uh,
0: you got your hammer ready, huh? Your hammer with the 95 theses on the on the door.
2: Oh yes. Well, yes, I mean you have the whole mm-hmm. history, and even and even more than that, Luther's uh, statements and the Lutheran confessor's statements on the Pope as one who has the marks of Antichrist. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not a very popular language to be using at a time when you're kind of excited to have a Pope from Latin America, right? Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not something said against the person of Jorge and what that represents in terms of the church's openness to the world. But it's something directed more uh, to the office of pope when it sets itself above the word of God, which was one of the, the, the criticisms of the Reformation uh, against the office of, of papacy, the office. And so, you know, I have a, a, a mixed reaction again. Uh, on the one hand, I see the possibilities, and I can see how the Holy Spirit, through the Word, can bring uh, reform uh, to the Catholic Church. And, of course, that is up to the Holy Spirit. Um, we dare not put aside the power of the Word to accomplish things everywhere. Uh And at the same time, uh, I don't get too overly excited because I do want to hear more, like Lanier says, about what uh, a common witness to Christ uh, would look like. As you know, the Catholic and the Lutheran Church have been involved in dialogues uh, for quite some time. In those dialogues, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, or the International Lutheran uh, Conference, with whom the Missouri Senate uh, has some association, uh, have not really been invited in the past. You know, it's been mostly the Lutheran World Federation hmm. and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what does dialogue look like? Um, which Lutherans are you speaking to? You know, uh A couple of days ago, uh, we had a visit from the representative of the uh, Office of Ecumenical Affairs uh, of the United States Catholic Bishops Conference. Hmm. That was the first time in a long time that uh, we had the official representative come to have some uh, initial talks with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And they came here to Concordia Seminary, in St. Louis. And what was interesting about that is that it seems that they are pitching a broader tent for dialogue. And part of the reason I think, uh, going back to what Lanier was saying, is uh, where we are together on some moral issues. Uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America uh, has gone the way of allowing, for example, for same sex. Uh, unions, uh, the ordination of homosexual uh, pastors, uh, which is not the case in the Missouri Synod. So I think the Catholic Church sees a connection there uh, on that moral witness and are now having kind of a broader tent for their dialogues. And so we're now being included, you know.
0: Now, now, just to make clear for everyone, you are a Lutheran, but you're in the Missouri Synod uh, part of Lutheranism. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's so we are sort of divided even within the Lutheran family. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we have friends and families, uh, some of whom are ELCA, others LCMS uh, Lutherans. So we have our own issues there in terms of dialogue with one another. I imagine with evangelicals you have similar things.
0: No, absolutely.
2: And now then you have to talk about discussions with the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. You know, so when Pope Francis was elected, I was excited like Luis about all that the person of Jorge Mario represents and what that can bring to to the church. And at the same time, um, I was sad because all these divisions – among Lutherans, uh, among Lutherans and Catholics, came up as well, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's an opportunity, you know, to think about what it means to be the one church. What does it mean to contribute? Towards unity, where should we stand together?
0: Right. Well, we're going to transition and talk about the Catholic Church in just a second, but I want to finish on Francis for a moment, if we may. What signals have you seen, uh, Scott and Lanier? And I'll start with Scott uh, on on the character of this Pope and what he what drives him, what he's concerned about.
4: Well, that's one thing that's attractive, uh, Daryl, in that. Uh, but least through his sister we're, we're told that his father moved out of Italy to escape fascism in part what back in the ni- early 1930s uh, and as he as he the oldest of five children uh, got into high school began increasingly as he got to be about age twenty one I understand wanted to move into the the jesuit order mm-hmm. and so there's that uh interesting mixture. The Jesuit order in itself is, is fascinating because they've been the kind of Rottweilers and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Navy SEALs of uh, the Catholic Church since the Counter-Reformation. Yet, yet he has taken a more conservative stand theologically and yet something of a liberation sympathy in terms of the way he lives. And so the fact that he would, as Archbishop of Buenos Aires, uh, Live in a fairly small room and make his own bed each day, and and take the subway or the bus to, to his uh, headquarters. That he would live humbly is really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. He on Holy Tuesdays, or Holy Thursdays, excuse me, would would uh, would go out to wash the feet of prisoners or of even even newborn babies and pregnant mothers, those born out of wedlock. Uh, uh, he he has shown remarkable uh, and genuine desire to identify with the poor minister to the needy, and he's done so in a way that has yet maintained a firmness mm-hmm. within the Roman Catholic camp of theology. This at a time when the great majority of Latin American li- uh, uh, Roman Catholicism moved toward a liberation theology and, quite frankly, was letting go of many of the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Mm-hmm. May I give you a little background there? Yeah, sure. You, you have a, a Catholic faith in Latin America that was largely identified with the bourgeoisie, the, the, the military and the, the military dictatorships uh, through the centuries. A number of uh, attempts to create a third way were unsuccessful in the 1920s, 1930s. A third way between Marxism and Absolute Atheism on one side and the status quo Catholic Church on the other. 1955 uh, brought about the first Episcopal All-Latin American Conference. And that was in Rio de Janeiro, and really that that, uh, amounted to nothing. But with Vatican II from 1962 to 1965, you have a representative numbers of, the Roman Catholic Church met, of course, in Rome for this major event, this modernization of the Roman Catholic Church, and that created the, the communication links all over Latin America, already the largest constituency of Roman Catholics in the world. And so out of that was birthed a liberation theology that in the second major Episcopal conference called SELAM II in Medellin, Colombia, exploded into what became known as liberation theology. In the 1970s, then you have you have uh, some of the theologians writing as though Jesus were essentially Che Guevara or Fidel Castro mm-hmm. in Palestinian clothing, mm-hmm. and almost nothing was said of his deity. So it was a young John Paul II that was was elected as Pope in 1979, and months later came the Puebla uh, conference, all Episcopal. Conference of Latin America, and it was then that John Paul II, and right behind him, Joseph Ratzinger, began to lay down strictures and limitations to what this liberation theology could look like. And they, in fact, walled in liberation theology theologically on many sides, such that some like a John Sabrina would actually apologize to the Pope, saying, you're right, we've emphasized so much the humanity of Jesus, we have not adequately stressed his deity as well. So you have this third conference at Puebla in in, uh, 1979. The next conference uh, occurs in Santo Domingo in the early 90s. And it is there that with the washout of Catholicism into especially Pentecostalism and the hostility created between uh, Neo-Charismatics in particular and the Catholic Church, uh, that's where the barriers really went up. You had in Brazil, on television even, certain figures uh, in one, one well-known uh, situation putting the, the Statue of Mary on the platform, speaking against it, and then kicking it off into the audience, hmm. calling the Pope the Antichrist, and many things like this. So John Paul II in Salaam four in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic basically said the pagan traditional religions are God's form of pre-evangelism to bring people into the church. The real problem are the evangelicals and at that point the walls went up. No longer was there, was there dialogue or, 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 or cooperation between even the major Protestant denominations and Catholicism. There was like a, a, a iron wall that came down between them. So the fifth Episcopal Conference was in 2007, again back in Brazil. And it is this uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio that was one of the main articulators of what is called the Apatacida document. Our Lady, of who has appeared, or Nossa Senhora Aparecida, is the patron saint of Brazil, just like Our Lady of Guadalupe mm. is of, of Mexico. But this document said nothing against evangelicals. In fact, seemed again to be opening the door to uh, some kind of dialogue going on there. So in terms of Latin American Roman Catholicism, the election of now Francis I as Pope is a is an open door that had been closed for at least 15 years toward, again, at least talking together and moving on from there. So there's a lot about this pope from a Latin American perspective, even an evangelical perspective, that, that is uh, encouraging. That's interesting. Well, you know, when
0: I, li- when I see how he is described and the way he lives in his lifestyle and the concerns that he has for the poor, the way he reaches out, I'm kind of reminded of a male Mother Teresa. Um, You know, um, uh, that uh, here is someone whose instincts uh, seem to be driven to be concerned for people who cannot or are not in a position socially to speak for themselves. And that's very, very clear in the way he goes about doing what he's doing, even the first. masses and, and uh, worship that he has led has, has shown to have an element of spontaneity about it as opposed to the formality yes. that you're used to seeing from the Roman Catholic uh, uh, Bishop of Rome. And so uh, all these things strike me as very interesting. Uh, Lanier, you have any observations about what you've seen from Francis?
5: Well, I think that um, Leo and Scott are very, very insightful. Um, I think in the public square. I think that the Episcopal gatherings mentioned by Scott are unknown to most people. That's right. Yeah. And I think another thing that is unknown to most people is the exquisite sensitivity of Catholicism when it looks in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think every gesture, I think every little garment tweak, uh, they think through that. And Jorge is was a cardinal, and mm-hmm. these are not. These are not ignorant men, right? And as a pope, he's Jesuit, highly intelligent. Uh, so I think what you're looking at is a parade of details that are that are carefully orchestrated and choreographed, which are genuine mm-hmm. for him. The thing that strikes me uh, at the public square level is that reform in the Catholic Church really can be traced or attempts at reform to Vatican II, mentioned by Scott, 6265, convened by John XXIII, mm-hmm. who was a very remarkable man, um, probably the most open of all recent popes. Mm-hmm. And I think John XXIII was quite open because the Catholic Church has been in crisis, mm-hmm. a giant medieval organization trying to come to grips with modernity. When you look at John Paul and you look at Benedict, you're looking at very, very conservative, intelligent people with great public relations. John uh, John Paul will, no doubt, be canonized. Mm-hmm. Um, now with Jorge. Um, I'm not competent to speak just yet, but I understand that he is of the same uh, conviction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he's going to be very conservative theologically, and he's going to try to hold the Catholic communion together with gestures and – uh, maybe not explicit communication. Yeah, and
0: I think that one of the challenges that the Catholic Church has is actually a challenge for all the churches, is that not only does it have to adjust to modernity, but it has to adjust to postmodernity. And, uh, and when you're global, like the Catholic Church is, um, society in Europe is not society in Latin America. Nor is it society in Asia these are these are different nor different is it society
5: cultures. in North America, <laughs> America exactly right and so
0: um, you know and I what little experience I have with Catholic Church is involved primarily in my time in Europe I've spent four sabbaticals in Europe in Germany and three years doing doctoral work that's seven years of my adult life. In the context of theological training um, uh, in Europe, and what strikes me because I've spent some time in Latin America as well is the difference between how Protestants and Catholics interact in Europe versus the way Protestants and Catholics have historically interacted in Latin America. It's it's two very different playing fields. It's mm, almost yeah. like soccer and football, American football. Uh, two very different games. Two very different sets of rules. In Europe. Um, Christianity is has become uh, culture is post-Christian. Christianity has become very much minority in any form, evangelical or Catholic, uh, highly secularized. And so you see this uh, pull for Catholics and evangelicals to work together in Europe to represent God and morality in a culture that is moving away f- uh, in, from that ver- very direction very very quickly. And so, so, so the dynamics are are, are one thing. Well, the, come to Latin America, the playing field is completely different. Here, you have millions and millions of Catholics who have been who have been evangelized. You have a core uh, uh, Roman Catholic undergirding to the culture that exists. You have evangelicals who have come into Latin America who are gaining. Uh, popularity and hold, and the Catholic response has been, for a long time, was resistance, as you've described through the various conferences that you're talking about. That's that's a different dynamic, and so okay. one of the challenges is how do you, how, how, how do Christians representing all these different groups interact with each other when even even the playing fields that they play on are so different from from location. To location. Leo, you have any observations to make about this? We're kind of transitioning into the relationship yeah. now between Catholics and, and evangelicals.
2: Well, let me uh, affirm something that Scott spoke uh, about, and that is the kind of social consciousness that we see uh, in the new Pope, given his experience with the harsh realities of poverty in Latin America and so on. Uh, and also, what Lanier talked about in terms of his conservative outlook uh, on on various moral issues uh, and traditional uh, church doctrine, it is interesting that the new pope kind of brings a blend of that. He's described as conservative and yet socially conscious, and it is actually characteristic of global South Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be conservative on moral issues like abortion uh, or gay marriage, uh, and yet more socially conscious at the same time in other areas.
0: So you're contrasting that to the way Christianity tends to manifest itself in North America. Is that right?
2: That is exactly right. Yeah. And and Europe,
3: mm-hmm. you see.
2: Um, one of the uh, painful stories of, mm-hmm. of division that has taken place uh, uh, most recently in Africa is that we see African churches affiliated with more liberal Protestant churches in the U.S. breaking fellowship mm-hmm. with those who first brought the gospel to them. Uh, precisely because there is a sense in which North America and Europe has, have misread the global south. Mm-hmm. The new pope actually seems to have kind of a better, better handle on this, you see. And so, things like access to, lack of access to education, uh, uh, things like, you know, poverty, uh, the environment. So, you know, these are issues uh, uh, that are uh, experienced overwhelmingly by brothers and sisters in the Global South. Uh, the typical Christian, your typical brother and sister in the Global South, is not only poor, but usually they're poor. hmm It's not at all the picture of a Christian that we might have in North America. (laughs) And so, you know, this Pope does open avenues for discussion on both issues that we can stand on in terms of the morally conservative outlook on life and at the same time this kind of socially um, uh, socially conscious outlook. On the church's mission. And so, you know, that can draw a number of conversation uh, partners uh, together. Uh, I do want to say something briefly, Daryl, about uh, the point made about Francis's uh, humility. Mm-hmm. This has been brought up a number of times. I, I do want to say that this is very, very important, not only in terms of what this might mean for the Catholic Church and its public persona in the world. Uh, but also what it might mean for Lutherans, for evangelicals, for others, because we too have issues in our churches. We too uh, have an opportunity to be humble. I think Lanier used the word "servant leaders."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, what are the areas in which we need reformation? Where do what do we need to repent of? Where have we not? Uh, where have we been going out to bless people rather than? you know, getting their prayers for us first. So because the Catholic Church is so visible, uh, it provides us an opportunity for reformation. What is it that we need to die for? You know, Luther speaks of the Christian life as a life of daily repentance. Mm -hmm. So the election of a new pope uh, also opens a door for us to die to self in order to be raised to new life. And where does that need to be for us? So, I want to uh, just sort of bring some of the threads of the discussion uh, together, which I have found very, very helpful mm-hmm. from our guests here today.
1: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Cat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: Good. Well, thank uh, Leo. Let me yes. let let's let's turn our attention to uh, issues of the Catholic Church and and evangelicals, and let's talk a little bit about the papacy because this is a uh, a public podcast, and people may or may not have background to understand the history of the papacy and where it comes from. Um, uh, I'm going to say it this way, uh, the, the pope has not always been with us. Uh, would that be a fair thing to say, that the, the history of the development of the papacy is part of the history of uh, the development of the Roman Catholic Church? And uh, even though sometimes the impression is that the pope – has been in a succeeding line going all the way back to Peter. I, I've walked into the church in Rome where you can see at the head of every pope, you know, since uh, since Peter up on the wall. Um, in fact, the history of the papacy is quite complex, and I actually don't know who's the better person to discuss this. So I'm going to throw it out and see who jumps on it uh in in terms of the history of the papacy. Uh why don't, why does one of you tell us where where the roots of that come from?
5: Roots of the papacy come from uh, the a form of hierarchical leadership that spanned the Middle East, Europe, the world, really. Uh, when you look at how recent American type of democracy is, where votes really count, mm-hmm. uh, it's very hierarchical. And historians speak of the dual crown of Europe, uh, which became a dual crown more and more as nation states came into existence, Mm -hmm. but the Pope was the big honcho. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were, you know, (coughs) lengthy centuries where Catholicism basically was Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, The papacy um, has, you know, uh, it hasn't been completely static, but it has always been relatively absolute. There's a substratum. That says the Pope is inerrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, another stream of Catholicism would say the Church is inerrant.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And those are primarily conciliarist. Mm-hmm. But he is the vicar of Christ, who, according to Catholic dogma, received the keys of the kingdom from Jesus Christ himself. Through Peter. Through Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the he, he sits on the Petrine seat in mm-hmm. Rome. He's mm-hmm. the Bishop of Rome. It's magical turf. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so in the public square, you have to understand the Pope is an absolute ruler of an invisible empire. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was I guess I was very impressed in Francis I. Um, that he rode the the, uh, minivan Mm -hmm. with his fellow cardinals after being elected pope. Mm -hmm. That was a little Mm countercultural. Once you're pope, you are the vicar of Christ for the Catholic Church. And and people go through the church to get to Christ, as opposed to the universal priesthood of believers.
0: Yes, and and the other thing that I think is interesting—that's the same kind of picture—is when uh, when he went to visit Benedict, um, he insisted that they pray together uh, on the side pew, as opposed to uh, praying in the front of the. Of the uh, sanctuary together, or making a distinction between him and Benedict. It's uh, these symbolic acts are are full of significance in a culture that has been so terrifically uh, hierarchical. the The question that I'm really getting at is how far back uh, do we go to get to the formation of the papacy? uh, That depends
5: on who you talk to. Okay, Uh, most of us would say Gregory the First. Mm Uh shortly after Saint Augustine.
0: Okay, so uh, just so people most people don't Sixth have century. the dates.
5: Sixth century, okay.
4: Yeah, you have a plurality of leaders of churches in Alexandria and Ephesus, Constantinople, Rome, and really with Gregory the First, at least the Latin Church, the Western Church Uh, begins to form that very strong, hierarchy. I shouldn't say begins to form it, but it crystallizes that strong, strong Mm -hmm. hierarchy. So de facto, the Pope is that that word of God into this world. But it is interesting, Uh, you have the magisterium, which is the term for the collection of cardinals and the collective wisdom that Lanier was referring to as well. So it has been out of that body that many of the doctrines of the Church have been formed. But the Pope has been, in in a way, over all of that. It is with Vatican I, however, back to about 1870, that the idea of the infallibility of the Pope, speaking ex cathedra. Or from the throne. The idea of the infallibility of the Pope was locked into place as dogma. And it really was a reaction to, the, to things that were happening in modernism, and the church was trying to get control over that, over that process. And there have been other doctrines since. It, it would surprise, I think, most of our listeners to know that in 1950, declared absolute dogma is the physical ascension of Mary, called the Assumption. The mm-hmm. Assumption of Mary into heaven. That, that Jesus would never leave his mother here to die a physical death, that contradicts what we have of early church history, mm-hmm. yet dogmatically she's not only without sin, either in nature or, or in activity, but now she did not die, she's taken into heaven as the Queen of Heaven, daughter of the Father, mother of the Son, spouse of the Holy Spirit. And- so there are some very strong doctrines that have locked into place prior to Vatican II, Again, from 1962 to 1965, that yet continue on. They no Roman Catholic can negate those doctrines. They are, they are as absolutely infallible as the Bible itself. In fact, many times even more so. And so, the
0: structure of Roman Catholic theology is obviously, and the way it works uh, with the magisterium alongside the Bible and the Pope at the top of that pyramid, if I can say it that way, uh, is one of the theological differences that separate. Protestants and Catholics from uh, one another. I do think it's interesting. Most people are not aware that many of of the doctrines of the church, or at least a few of them, are very, very recent in terms of their yes. in terms of their being established as a, but, a central teaching of the church. But there was a
5: whole stream of tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were decisions that locked in. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mariology mm-hmm. and the papacy. Well, ah, oh, that's. That's medieval, right? Yeah, right. Well, the roots mm-hmm. go back, but they don't go
0: back all the way. Uh, my understanding has been, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the first impulses to try and unify the church under a head started with with figures like uh, Ignatius and Irenaeus, who were trying to to uh, elevate the status of the bishops uh, as a whole and trying to get the church under some level of organization. And then it gradually evolved to the point that by the time we get to the sixth century and Gregory. Uh, this has been formalized. I remember reading – my son attended uh, attends, actually, still there in a master's program, St. John's University in Queens, which is a Catholic school. He had to take a theology course as an undergraduate um, of Catholic theology, and interestingly, the book that they had him read was The History of the Catholic Church by Hans Küng. Uh, which I thought was an interesting uh, little exercise, since Hans isn't exactly the most popular uh, uh, Catholic or ex-Roman Catholic, depending on your point of view, um, uh, in the in the church. But this history of the Catholic Church, which I read while Stephen was reading it, w- was interesting because the bulk of that book is actually the history of the papacy from Hans Küng's point of view, and how he felt that the papacy as a as an institution. Um, really became uh, not a, a unifier of the church so much as a, as a threat to the unity of the church, which I thought was an interesting way to think about uh, the papacy. So it, it shows the tension. I, I think if you look at how Scripture and the church are related to one another in Roman Catholicism versus Protestantism, you think about the role of Mary in a Roman Catholic theology vis-a-vis Protestantism and what that means about the priesthood, the believers, etc. Uh, and you think about the role of the papacy—that those are probably—I uh, don't know if that's the the trinitarian roadblock between Protestants and Catholics. No, actually but actually, there's th- the cult of the saints
5: as well. There's the cult of the of saints, of which Mariology well, is, is a part, is a major part, right?
0: And, and so it's no accident that Francis gets up and at the very first, you know, after he asks for prayers about himself, and almost as quickly out of his mouth, there are allusions to Mary. As he's speaking to the public there in Saint Peter's, and and you know I catch those when that when that happens. So um, yeah, we've been going on here for a while, Leo, without letting you speak into this. Uh, What's your observation on the conversations that we're having about the historic position of the church, of the Roman Catholic Church?
2: I I was thinking that most uh, people would probably be shocked to know that the Lutheran confessors would actually uh, allow uh, the Pope to be the leader of the Western Church if he were to teach in accordance with the Word of God. Hmm. In other words, you could be a Pope. One of the arguments the Lutheran confessors made was that you could be a Pope by human arrangement if you wanted to. I mean, you could have any form of government in the church because there was nothing divinely mandated in the scriptures and so you go ahead and organize yourself the best way you can but don't say that this is somehow by divine design Mm -hmm. and so that was kind of an issue you know the other one too was that the authority of the pope also extended over uh, 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 actually kingdoms of the world and so there was kind of a political dimension to the pope's reign As opposed to only a spiritual, pastoral, kind of uh, work on behalf of the sheep, Uh, and so Lutherans were actually at first willing to consider uh, having the pope uh, by by human design, uh, you know, and live with that arrangement. But the issue was one of the gospel, and so and so, you know. Where is the Holy Spirit to be found, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can talk about apostolic succession all you want, but what happens when the teaching is not in accordance with the Scriptures?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You see, so ultimately you don't locate Spirit uh, in a particular office because people in office can err.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but Luther would say you locate it in the Word of God, mm-hmm. which points to Christ and through which uh, Christ speaks. So, you know, this might be a little bit shocking, you know, but uh, the problem with the office of Pope is, uh, uh, you know, the office sort of trying to set itself above the Word of God. But in terms of an arrangement, you could go hierarchical, you can go congregational. uh, And this is another issue that Lanier sort of brought up. The Catholic Church itself uh, is a little bit um, I wouldn't say divided over this but with Vatican II you have kind of two intersecting conceptions of the church for Roman Catholics. You have the hierarchical view and at the same time you have this people of God view Mm -hmm. which is more of a from below thing. Mm -hmm. The near also mentioned conciliar theory which means that the the bishops speaking together with the bishop of Rome actually sort of Uh, Define or articulate Catholic teaching as opposed to just the Pope giving it to you from above. Uh, And then, furthermore, in Vatican II, you have another tension in Catholicism, which is between those who want to push for aggiornamento or the bringing up today of the church, contextualizing it, Mm. you know, uh, and these are the people who you might call progressives, you know. Uh, you know, the church doesn't move fast enough to change some things that should be changed. And on the other hand, you have on the other hand, you have sort of those of the continuity party, as it were. Uh, More the resourcement, the going back to the sources. How are we in continuity with the church of all times and places? So, you know, someone like Jorge Mario, someone like Bergoglio, Pope Francis um, certainly it's more in the continuity party. So things like the dogma of, of papal infallibility, the assumption of Mary, those are not going to go away anytime soon. But at the same time, he also comes into this tradition of conciliarity, uh, of bringing up today the church on, on issues that relate to uh, you know, this social uh, societal um, uh, concern, uh, so we'll have to see. One thing is to talk about what Pope represents. another thing is to talk about what will happen in the church under this Pope you know
0: That's right. now let me let me go back and just uh, close the loophole for people who aren't that familiar with the Lutheran Church and Lutheran theology. When you speak of the Lutheran confessors, who are you talking about? Who are yes, those thank
2: people? You. Thank you. So when we talk about Lutheran confessors we talk about those with Luther who wanted to confess uh, the truth of the Word of God over against certain abuses that they saw in the Catholic Church, both theological and practical. And typically, it's a reference to a set of writings that came together under the Book of Conquer. Mm-hmm. The Book of Conquer. a number of confessional documents, uh, where the Lutheran theologians would confess... Uh, the truth of Scripture over against some abuse that they would see. And so there is a whole list of these documents compiled under what is called the Book of Concord. Concord means unity or mm-hmm. harmony, mm-hmm. meaning that the Lutheran confessors were not thinking about separating themselves from the Catholic Church. They were thinking in terms of uniting. You know, They were thinking in terms of bringing everybody together. They were
0: Catholic of our- progressives of their time.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, they were actually concerned for the unity of the church, even though today we think of Lutherans and Protestants and j- as just kind of you know they're uh, leaving a country in exile never to come back again. Mm-hmm. You know, where in reality, there was a big concern for the unity of the church with the early reformers.
0: Now I don't mean to bore everyone, but I uh, where does Melanchthon's Lokis? Where does it fit into all this? Does it fit in?
2: Yeah, Luther spoke highly of Melanton, was basically a lay person. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a layman who taught Greek uh, and Latin, the classics, uh, uh, at the University of Wittenberg, mm-hmm. and was a close associate of Luther, and was one of the ones who actually wrote down uh, some of the initial documents that were presented before the emperor to define uh, the Catholic teaching as it was uh, understood or received by the Lutheran princes and so on. And so Melanchthon wrote, actually, was kind of the first systematician. Mm-hmm. He was the first Lutheran systematician and kind of put some of these uh, confessions into a more um, doctrinal format, you know, with the log-see, mm-hmm. though, uh, the different articles of faith. Uh, so Luther spoke rather highly of, of Melanchthon. And then... Other systematicians came uh, in the generation after Luther.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So that group as a whole, those are the Lutheran confessors.
2: The Lutheran confessors, yes. Yeah,
0: very good. All right. Well, um, uh, as we as we talk about, uh, let's talk practically about what advice would you give to people who interact with Catholics on a regular basis uh, as evangelicals um, and. Uh, how how should we think about about those relationships? As you said, there's theology from above, but there's also theology from below. There's theology as it's conducted between people, and uh, and, and sometimes these uh, institutions and what people think about institutions can can um, can get in the way of, of the personal relationships that people
5: have or have the potential
0: to develop. Um, so, what would you say about that, Lanier?
5: Uh, I've had any number of Catholic friends. And I led a number of Catholic people to the Lord in the 1990s, particularly, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Our conversations are Christocentric. Mm -hmm. Uh, They uh, are really bound by the system. And – Catholics have the feeling that if they leave the system, they're going to hell. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I'm watching is Catholicism and globalism, because I think it depends on where you are in the world as to how you dialogue with Catholics. Mm. We've not talked about Catholic-Anglican dialogue. Mm -hmm. We've had a heavy Lutheran input, Mm -hmm. but what's very interesting to me is Jorge Francis First uh, has on his agenda greater dialogue with the Muslims.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Wow, let's see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my friends and at a local level, uh, we don't we don't talk doctrine deeply. Mm-hmm. We wish them well as they go on their pilgrimages to mm-hmm. lords mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But that some of these people at the bottom level know Christ participate in Bible study fellowship and do other things mm-hmm. is beyond question
0: yeah I mean there are some people who really have a feet in in two camps simultaneously they have one foot in the Catholic Church but they're hanging out and going to Bible studies that are led by evangelicals on the other and that mixture produces an interesting <laughs> an, 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 an interesting Condition and an interesting dilemma for everybody in terms of how people view their their Christian
4: identity. Scott, what do you have to? Well, I would agree with uh, what Lanier's been saying uh, that you talk Christ and and that that salvation through grace that we are indeed fully forgiven. It is interesting that in Latin America, at least in some of the larger cities, the the methodology even of Catholicism has shifted around to singing evangelical songs, Uh, it's the television productions, it's the handsome people in the front, even with uh, invitations of different kinds. Uh, There is a lot of uh, increasing, what do you say, uh, copying or cloning or or at least paralleling what one or the other is doing. Uh, And yet, in my experience in Latin America, I, I found very few who were even conservative Catholics. Hmm. Uh, uh, And I found almost no, although the numbers were supposed to be great, but I was there 18 years, charismatic Catholics, Mm -hmm. almost none. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and a number of my students at different schools that I would teach in had been even in seminaries training for the Catholic priesthood, and had then really come in reading the Bible in certain cases to come to Christ directly through Mm -hmm. faith. They tended to be the most dogmatically opposed then to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, so as we talk about how do we talk with our Roman Catholic friends around the world, it, it varies so so very greatly yeah
0: I, I, uh, you're, you're triggering my sense of my interaction with European Catholics that I had contact with, and so many Catholics in Europe are what I would call cultural Catholics as opposed to being uh, church Catholics, by which I mean it wasn't that they adopted an identification with all the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, it's just that it's almost like an ethnicity. They they mm-hmm. identified themselves culturally as Catholics, and if you push them, they would say, I'm Catholic. But if you asked what that meant, you could get anything and everything in terms of what, what you're hearing. So, um, uh, uh, so I, I think it is. I, I think it's right to think about. This is a very, very complex relationship. Not only the relationships at the institutional level complex, but the relationships at the individual level are complex because people are on their own con- individual continuums in terms of where they fit in relationship to the to the f- face that are that are being presented to them. Uh, Leo, what would you have to say to us in terms of practical advice?
2: Well, I I think uh, the in the Catholics, you know, they tend to see uh, faith through church. That is to say, you may never actually go to church, but you're still sort of part of the family because you were baptized there once. Mm-hmm. So I think Catholics approach uh, faith mostly through the church or what Lanier call, calls perhaps a system.
3: Mm-hmm. You
0: know,
2: you're kind of part of the system. And denominational evangelicals
0: can be yeah. the same kind, can do the same kind of thing.
2: Yeah, you know, and so I think. Uh, in the Lutheran tradition, and I think this might be true of evangelicals too, is that we tend to approach things in terms of faith in Christ. Now, we don't want to detach that from church. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be careful on that that we don't make things so personal that now we're no longer part of the body of Christ, but just kind of an individual Christian. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so that's a challenge. But let let me give you my, kind of my take on the from below, and this kind of sound a little shocking coming from a Lutheran. Uh, who actually is, uh, tends to be pretty heavy on the doctrine, mm-hmm. but I think uh, often what happens among people, everyday people is that you know they don't come at you with questions right away necessarily. They're looking for your life, the kind of life that mm-hmm. you live. you know and so if I can trust you with the little things, the things that have to do with you know welcoming the immigrant. You know, if I can trust you with things like taking care of my family, then I can trust you with the big questions, you know, about God and Christ. And then maybe we can talk about Mary. How do you understand that? But global South Christians, you know, they tend to approach things from below. So it's all about building relationships once again. Mm -hmm. And that will open the door then to talk about maybe other issues Mm -hmm. that have to do more with what we believe. You know, so I think ecumenism uh, 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 the promotion of the church's unity can happen at a very local level, at the level of relationships Uh, not always simply through statements that are put out by churches from above which never kind of trickle down.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's
2: maybe one way of thinking about promoting the church's unity at the local level. And get together with with other pastors, how, how often do we get together with pastors, who, who with whom we don't agree uh, on everything, to kind of talk through that? So mm-hmm. I think people will follow what their church leaders do. Mm-hmm. If their church leaders are not concerned with, uh, you know, getting together with other Christians to talk about issues, they'll never do it. So how do we model that concern for the unity of the church? How often do we pray? That Christians will come together. How often do we pray that that divisions will be healed? How often does that happen in the church service? Mm-hmm. You know. So how do we sort of lose the parochial way of thinking and, and think of ourselves more in terms of uh, an expression of the universal church? You see, which is not only limited to our own denomination. Mm-hmm. But the church are all those who believe in Christ, and that, of course, includes more than Lutherans or evangelicals.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I'm going to close with this last question. It's a hard question to ask at the end. But what would be your advice in the context of some people who say, that any relationship or contact with the Roman Catholic Church should be shunned simply because of the system of what the Roman Catholic Church is. And that there is no, you know, it's kind of the hard Protestant edge, if I can say it that way. Um, how do you how do you how do you have people think through that yeah, I mean uh, Scott, you mentioned people who sometimes have come out of Catholicism, have come to Christ as evangelicals and sometimes the, the people who are harshest against the Catholic Church are former Catholics who feel, if I can say it this way, betrayed that the Roman Catholic Church never drew them to Christ in the way that their subsequent experience has drawn them to Christ and so they feel like it, it, it was an obstacle to to their understanding as opposed to a benefit. What, what would you say?
4: Sometimes I, th- I think we, uh, our, our different cultural expressions of Catholicism or experiences with Catholicism, uh, are not always true to the broader church and the church history itself. Mm-hmm. I often We'll go back to the doctrines of who Jesus Christ is as the eternal Son of God, and the doctrine of the Trinity, and and what we call the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ, and show that, in great part, even the Roman Catholic catechisms today, catechism today, the official doc, doctrine of of the Church, corresponds largely with what we as evangelicals believe. There mm-hmm. are those areas of the magisterium of Mary, of the uh, authority of the church over the Word of God, so to speak, areas that we have to speak against. But there is a lot in common as well. And so as I negotiate with uh, those who are Roman Catholic, I often – one thing that I do as in Brazil is I say, do you remember those great conversions of Augustines Mm -hmm. and others in your church history? I'll, I'll ask, why doesn't that happen anymore? Could it be that you've lost some of the original message that was proclaimed by the early church that is now no longer being heard?
3: Hmm. Hmm.
4: Lanier, I think uh, in a
5: modern technological world you can't avoid it. Um, I think the the average person with information revolution technology uh, is forced to come to grips with issues like interrelationships between religions.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: Uh, I've already received four lengthy articles by email on the fact that Francis I is a sure sign of the Antichrist Mm -hmm. because he's such a good guy. Yeah, the candidate list always grows. And so (laughs) and so my feeling is is that I can't change people's opinion on something that's so deep seated. Mm -hmm. Usually usually it comes from an intensely Catholic-Protestant juxtaposition,
3: Mm -hmm. like
5: Ireland, for example, Mm -hmm. or like Italy, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I choose not to respond to that, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I try to offer a little bit of a more intelligent appraisal uh, of why we have to relate to one another as human beings Mm -hmm. with our differences, But hey, who who doesn't differ with other people? That's right. Uh Leo, what do you what do you have to to suggest? Well, this this,
2: this may be an apocryphal uh story, but I'll say it anyways. It lo- it seems like when Pope Francis was a a professor of theology, he was apparently asked once what he thought about divisions in the Catholic Church. Uh, and he told his student uh that the that the problem here or the solution, rather, was for him to stay away from the church. Because if he would join it, he would make a mess of it. Hmm. And I think the the bigger point here is that the the real issue is not division in the church, but sin.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and, and you know, uh, we all, uh, insofar as we are now faithful to the Word of God, we will sin and we will speak at times, even against that word, or do things uh, uh, against uh, what the Scriptures teach. So I think, you know, uh, when we talk about uh, ecumenism, there has to be a recognition that, uh, as Luther would say, we are saints and sinners at the same time. Simul justus et peccator. So, you know, we can, at times, be an obstacle to the unity of the church by simply refusing to speak, but at the same time, from a pastoral point of view, not everybody's in the same place.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, if you've re- if you've been really hurt uh, uh, by being in the Catholic Church or an Evangelical Church or a Lutheran Church, you know, because we ha- we find also you know uh, abuse of children in exactly other right. Unions, right? Uh, uh, if you've been really hurt and it's so raw, well, it's n- you're not one of those who're going to be promoting the unity of the church at that point in time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe later. So you have to meet people where they're at um, and be sensitive to their to each of their individual experiences. At the same time, you know we still have Christ praying that the church be one.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and so that's also part of what uh, the Lord's prayer is. And if it is the Lord's prayer, then it should also be the prayer of His disciples regardless of what denomination they're a part of.
0: Well, I think that one of the great challenges of course of life in in a modern world where knowledge is so free flowing and where the interaction is happening at so many levels globally and otherwise is to deal with this diversity, this religious diversity that we all face and have to engage at one level or another and i just want to thank you all for uh, taking the time to come on and speak with us about about the new pope about the relationship between the catholic church and evangelicals and hopefully those of you who have been listening uh, have benefited from the conversation gotten some perspective on 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 uh, the background of not only the new pope but but the way to think about engaging in what is a very very complex world. So we thank you for joining us at the table where we discuss discuss issues of God and culture and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary teach truth, love well.